So we are finishing up with our study of Elijah, as Pastor Mark had mentioned a little bit earlier. The passage that we come to tonight, uh, I, I think, is kind of an odd passage. First um, Kings chapter 19 is where we're going to be. And I think it's odd because of what we have sort of seen in Elijah sort of building up to last week, sort of that climactic event last week. Um, I, 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 think it was, uh, I think it was Omar that kicked off our, our study of Elijah, if I'm not mistaken. And he, he did a great job of, of, of setting up what we were going to be studying over the course of the next few weeks, um, sort of setting the stage for Elijah as this hero. And so that's what we have seen from Elijah over this period of weeks is this hero. And, it, and it's been building week after week as, we, as we've seen. Um, you know, the, the, the heroism of, of, of Elijah in you know, speaking a, a drought. You know, he, he speaks and there's a, a drought. He, you know, we, we see him as he's being fed by ravens. Um, I don't know if you you know, how familiar are the ravens? I mean, these are pretty big birds, and they're birds. You know, it's just, you know, it, it, it's odd, but it, it, it sort of fits with Elijah. And then, of course, last week, the, um, you know, this huge event with the, the showdown. You know, on the one, one side, you've got Elijah as the, the prophet of the one true God, and, and on the other, we have Ahab and the, the prophets of Baal, this false god, and um, you know, we, we see as Elijah calls down fire from heaven, and, and you know he slaughters you know 400 of the of the prophets of Baal. Um, big event, heroic. Uh, when Omar was setting this up, I, I know he, he he made some references to superheroes and kind of tied in the, the superhero, the comic book hero. Uh, the, you know, the one I remember him specifically mentioning was Iron Man. I think that was the one that he, he mentioned. But if you start thinking about superheroes, what is it that makes them heroic? What is it that makes a superhero a superhero? It's, what it, it's, it's a superpower. You know, Superman has you know, superhuman strength. He can, uh, you know, he can fly, for crying out loud. Um, X-ray vision. You've got uh, Captain America. Super strong. He can run. The Flash. He can. You know. He's runs as, as fast as, as lightning. There, there's a there's a superpower that the superhero has, and, and it's one of the things that you know attracts us to read about him and watch the the movies, the Marvel movies, if you're into that sort of thing. Um, but there's something about that superpower. Uh, you know, just kind of looking in here. I think there are enough of us that are my age and, and younger. So your kids, I'm sure, have seen the movie. Um, those of you who are grandparents, you may have watched it with your grandkids. Uh, the Incredibles. You remember The Incredibles that came out? I want to say the early 2000s was when The Incredibles came out. And it's the story of Mr. Incredible and, and the, this family of superheroes. And, and as the movie kicks off, uh, you know, Mr. Incredible, he's supposed to be going to his wedding um, to marry Elastigirl. And he, he kind of gets distracted because there's a crime in progress. So he goes and does what a superhero is going to do. He's going to, um, you know, take care of the criminals and, uh, and, you know, and break that up. 
And in the process of that, he, if I remember, I think he goes to get back in his car, and in the car is this little kid named Buddy. And Buddy is sort of a Mr. Incredible groupie. And he follows Mr. Incredible, everything Mr. Incredible does. He wants to grow up to be just like Mr. Incredible. Except Buddy's not a superhero. And Mr. Incredible doesn't really want to be bothered with this little, you know, snot-nosed little kid following him around. And so he, he, he kind of gets rid of him, tells him to go away. And you know, I think the cops maybe come and take him, to, take him home or whatever. And you, you sort of fast forward through the movie. Buddy has grown up. Buddy is now the villain in the movie. You know, rejected by Mr. Incredible, and, and so he has sort of set out his purpose in life is, you know, he builds these, uh, you know, I think things for his wrists and his feet so he can fly and, you know, he can shoot lasers or whatever. Um, and, and the idea that Buddy has is he's going to make this all available to, to everybody. And he's got the line that he has in the movie, if you remember, if everyone is super, then no one is. Um, there's something about a superpower and a superhero that sets them apart. It segregates them from us. We can't really relate to a superhero. We relate more to a human hero because the human hero is, is flawed. They're normal. Um, you know, they're, they're more like us. You know, we see a lot of these in, in sports. You know, as I was preparing this, I kind of thought of, of Joe Namath. Uh, you know, if you remember Joe, Joe Namath, Joe Willie Namath, uh, Broadway Joe, great football talent, great quarterback, uh, great abilities, and he, you know, he led the New York Jets to their their first and, and their only Super Bowl title. Defeated, you know, a team that was thought to be invincible in the the Baltimore Colts. But he's kind of fast forward through Joe Namath's career, and you get to the end of his career. And if I remember, he, he's, he's with the L.A. Rams. He's got two bad knees. He's old. He's not merely an aging quarterback. He's, he's an old quarterback. And, and the ability and the talent is, is not there. It's not what it once was. The skills are just not what they once were. And as, as much as you want to look away watching him at the end of his career, you can't help but watch him because we're just attracted. We're drawn to... The, the human hero, the hero who uh, you know, has those, those flaws. And so you know, as, as we've been going through the study of Elijah, we've been kind of building up, and in our own minds even, we, you know, we kind of build him up as being this super heroic um, prophet. And then we get to chapter 19. And in chapter 19, what we see, and what we're, we'll, where we'll look at it tonight, is it, it's a reminder that Elijah is not just a superhero. He's human. He, he's a real person, a real man. And we see him, and it's kind of raw. And there's parts of it that as you read them and as you think about what, what he's actually saying in here, it, some of it is a little disturbing to see our hero this low. You know, he's discouraged. He's depressed. He's despondent. Uh, he's fearful. But all of that makes him even more heroic, I think, because you know the, the frailty of uh, of Elijah that we see, I think, makes him more relatable and makes him even more heroic. Um, but in that sense, I think it's an odd passage because we don't really expect to see our hero so low. But there's a there, there's an important 
there's an important, important message in there for us as we see that. The, the, the fear that we see in Elijah, the, the importance of guarding against that and, and trusting and keeping our eyes on the Lord. Because what we'll see happen is Elijah takes his eyes off the Lord. He looks down. And the result of that, the result of looking down is never, is never good. So we're going to be in, in chapter 19 of 1 Kings, if you want to turn there. Um, I've only got two main points that we're going to look at tonight. Um, these first, uh, first five verses, I think, are where we see the hero's humanity. And then we're going to move from there. We'll see the, the hero's hope that, that comes out of that. So starting in verse 1, chapter 19, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as, as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. So the, the humanity of our hero um, on display, we see in verse 3, says that Elijah was afraid. He had fear. Um, you know, intimidation, threats that have been made by Queen Jezebel. Um, you know, we've got Elijah, who's this great hero of faith. You know, this is the one who's called down the fire from heaven. This is the one who has slaughtered all of the prophets of, of Baal um, just one chapter before. Um, he's also a man of, of incredible humility. Um, we have seen him as he has prayed these, these great prayers uh, and, and has trusted God for his promises. And, and yet... Um, he crumbles in the face of these threats, the, the, in the face of this intimidation from the very ones he has just faced down. He's afraid. Um, verse 3 and, and 4 go on to tell us that he, he runs in the face of this newfound fear. And I guess, if you, if you read it, I guess if you are a hero and you're going to run, you run. Uh, because Elijah goes, it says, to Beersheba. Now, Beersheba is about as far away as he can get from Ahab and Jezebel. It's in the southernmost portion of Judah. So he's gone about as far as he can go, get away. And then we're told from there he goes on another day's journey from there as well. So he, he is getting himself geographically as far away from these threats as you can, as you can, possibly, you can possibly get. Um, and and it, it sort of reminds us of another prophet that we know all too well in Scripture, Jonah. You know, Jonah is called by God to go where? To go to Nineveh. Um, Jonah doesn't go to Nineveh, not immediately. He doesn't go near Nineveh. He doesn't go around Nineveh. He doesn't even stay put where he is. I mean, he gets on a boat and tries to sail in the complete opposite direction to get as far away from Nineveh as he can. That's kind of where we see Elijah now, you know, taking himself as far to the south as he can possibly 
possibly get. And it's interesting that if you go back and if you've paid attention in the prior chapters and note the number of times where what we read is, you know, God said to him, go. You know, the word of the Lord came to him, go. And here, there's no word of the Lord that came to Elijah and told him to flee from Jezebel or Ahab. He just goes. Um, so he's tried to take himself as far away as he can possibly get from the mission that he's been, uh, that he's been getting. And, and the question that we have to ask is why? You know, why does Elijah so fear Jezebel? Um, why do her intimidations and, and her threats, why do they scare him and frighten him so much? So much that he would run this far away from, from the post that he's been given. And, and the answer to that question, I think, serves as a great example, really a warning for us to guard against the same attitude of fear that Elijah has. Um, so, you know, why was Elijah so fearful? How did he get to this point from where we just saw him, you know, literally on this mountaintop experience that he just had? Well, first of all, he's, he's not thinking clearly. That's the first thing to note here is that he's not thinking clearly because he, he doesn't consider the source of the intimidations, the source of the threats. Because who is it that has threatened him? It's Jezebel. Yeah, it's Jezebel. And what do we know about Jezebel? She's a what? <laughs> Neurotic, that's one way to, to describe her. I mean, she's evil, she's violent, yeah, despicable. Yeah, she is. Uh, she is not. She's not a good person. Uh, we'll, we'll, we can describe her that way. She is a, a godless, unbelieving, God-opposing, idolatrous. But she's a she's she's a a a, a godless, unbelieving, God-opposing, idolatrous human. Right. So Elijah is now listening to the threats of this human. You know, the, you, someone who has lived in just complete opposition to the very God who has empowered him for the, all of these great heroic acts that we've seen up until now. He's now listening to the human threatening him. In Psalm 56, uh, David, David writes, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long, an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? When Elijah should have cried out to the Lord, um, you know, confessing the, the, the fear, the, the weakness that he should have felt himself falling into when he, when he should have done that, asking the Lord for strength and standing in the strength of the Lord, what does he do? He, he runs. He runs away and he flees because he failed. First of all, he failed to consider the source. He wasn't thinking clearly, but he also had isolated himself. Um, if, you know, if you notice in verses 3 and, and then into 4, it says he... You know, he came to Beersheba, and he left his servant there. And then he goes on a, a full day's journey into the wilderness. So he's gone alone into the wilderness, we're told. 
Ecclesiastes 4, starting in verse 9, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, and one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Um, I think it's interesting, uh, human nature, and how we tend to react when, or act, I guess, when we become discouraged. Because one of the first things we tend to do is try to get away. Try to get away by ourselves and get alone when we're discouraged or when we're faced with discouragement. And that is almost, in every case, the absolute worst thing that we can do. It's the worst thing that Elijah could do, uh, was to go off by, him, by himself. Because discouraged people are lonely people, and lonely people are vulnerable people. Um, you know, our, our isolation, when we, when we pull ourselves away from others, and we go off to be by ourselves, in, in, in our discouragement, in our depression, um, it opens us up to spiritual attack. You know, we're open to, uh, to, to depression and anger. And, and the depression and anger and, um, and, and despondency that we're, we're feeling increases even, even more uh, as, we're, as we're isolated. Peter talked about this. He, he said that our adversary is Satan and that he prowls around like a lion waiting and, and, and looking for the opportunity to devour. But it's Paul who reminds us in Romans 12 we're all individual members of a body, but we are one body. Um, there, there is strength in that body. Um, you know, the, the, the principle all the way back into Genesis, uh, Genesis 2. Uh, you know, God has created everything. He's created man, and he looks at, at man, and he says what? He says, it is not good for the man to be alone. Now, in the context, he... he, he, he creates Eve and he gives him his helper, but the principle remains the same, that um, we're not to isolate ourselves. That's not how, uh, that's not how we are to, um, you know, to, to, to act in, in, these, in these situations, like Elijah, because by isolating himself, he's opened himself up for even more doubt. He's opened himself up for even more discouragement and more fear. So he's, he's gotten himself into this, this place of fear because he, he failed to consider the source he, and, and he has now isolated himself. But he's also, he kind of gets caught out a little bit on the mountaintop. Um, you, know, the, you know, I mentioned earlier, I referenced the, the mountaintop experience. Well, I mean, this is a mountaintop experience of all mountaintop experiences. I, I, I've been a runner for, I don't know, I guess it's probably a few, a couple of decades now. I've you know, run in several marathons, and you, you don't just go out and run in a marathon. You don't just decide to do that on a whim. There, there's, there's a buildup to the marathon. You have to, you have to train. You have to prepare for that moment. And, and then, you know, Nate, I know you, you ran in one in December, so you, you know this as well. You're preparing for that moment, and, and, and the closer you get, there's an excitement that builds. And then you get to the day of, and, and, you, and you run this, and, and you, when you've completed it, there's this incredible feeling of accomplishment. You know, you, you've really done something. You know, wow, I ran, you know, I ran a marathon. And it never fails that usually it's a few days later. You're still sore, 
But in your mind, you start thinking, you know, okay, well, gosh, what, what now? What's next? And, and there's, a, there's some discouragement that kicks in. There's a little bit of, of depression that kicks in now. Um, you know, you think about your own, you know, our own salvation experiences and, and that mountaintop experience. Um, I, was, I was saved in youth camp one summer. I was 14. We were literally up on, on a mountain. And, you know, those of you who have been to youth camp, summer youth camps in, in, a, in a church setting, you kind of know how it's set up. You know, usually you get up there on a Monday, come back on a Friday. Every night there's a service, you know, kind of builds up to the, you know, the, the big service is always on Thursday night, at least it was for us. And it was at that Thursday night service that I finally responded uh, to the call and, and gave my life to, to Christ. Then we came back, literally came down off the mountain. We, we came back home. And many of you have experienced this as well. There, it's sort of like, okay, gosh, you know, I was up on the mountain and now life is just going on around me and what do I do now? Now what happens? Um, our most vulnerable moments almost always follow a great victory. And it's in those times where we most need to prepare and to set up a defense against the enemy. That's what Elijah failed to do. Luke chapter 14, uh, Jesus has been invited to eat at the house of a Pharisee on the Sabbath, and he heals a man there. And of course, you know, Pharisees there, and so as Jesus was wont to do, he, uh, you know, he has now incurred another um, confrontation with the with the Pharisees over this. And as he leaves there, there, there are throngs of, of people that are now beginning to to follow him around. And he turns to them, and he says, you know, those who would follow ought to consider the cost of following me. You know, consider the cost of following me, and and plan accordingly. Elijah has just defeated the, the prophets of Baal. Uh, he slaughtered them. You know, he's got energy and, and excitement, surely, that, that, that's, at a, that's at a peak in that moment. But he left himself vulnerable because he thought the battle was over. Um, and it was just beginning. He hadn't considered what the cost of his victory would be. And so he hadn't planned for that. Ahab and Jezebel, they're, they're not simply going to sit back and just brush that off. Uh, they're not going to let it go. I mean, he, he slaughtered all of the prophets, the priests of Baal. Um, that's kind of a big deal if you're Ahab and, and Jezebel. They're not going to just let that go. But see, on the mountaintop, as he's, as he's bathing in the, 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 the victory that he's, he's had, he got caught without considering what the cost of that victory would be, and it left him in a vulnerable place. So he gets caught out a little on the mountaintop, and that, that sort of feeds into this, this fear that he that he now has. Uh, but he was also, he was physically exhausted and he was emotionally spent. He's been public enemy number one for years now. You know, if you had, you know, if you think about it in, you know, the FBI's most wanted list, he's at the top of Ahab and Jezebel's list. Um, you know, really the only name that needs to be on there is Elijah. Uh, he's been living in the wilderness. He's been close to starvation. And then that, that mountaintop experience, the confrontation, the slaughtering of, of the prophets, that great victory, and all of this has led to a point where he is just, he's at the end of his rope. He, he's, he, he's done. He's physically done. He's emotionally done. And, and as a result, um, he's spiritually at the, at the end as well. 
And he's been going full speed. He's been going full bore 24-7 for years. There's an old, old Greek saying that you will break the bow if you keep it always bent. If you take the bow, and you think of a bow and arrow, and, and you, you've always got that bow bent. At some point, it's just going to break. Um, you know, back in, in Genesis, the end of Genesis chapter 1 and, and going over into, uh, in, into chapter 2, God sets a principle for us. He sets an example of rest. You know, he's created. Six days he's created. Um, seventh day, he, he rests uh, from his work. Why is it that we so often ignore the principle of rest that God set for us then? We, we ignore it. We forget it. Um, you know, I, I, culturally, I know here, you know, we've got the, this great American work ethic. And it's, a, it's been a great, uh, great work ethic for us. You know, we, we've worked and we've built, you know, you, you look at what we've, what we've done and what we've accomplished in this country, but at, at what cost has it been to relationships, what it's been to, uh, to families, this, this unceasing work ethic that, that we have. You know, pastors, those in, in, in the ministry are not, certainly not immune from, from that as well. It, it's hard. Ministry is hard. There, there's heavy burdens that are, that are born um, in, in the ministry. And, and too often you see those in ministry get beaten down weighed down with these, with these burdens and, 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 and they're defeated and, and too many end up leaving the ministry altogether. Our, our tendency is to work without ceasing. And the effects of that on relationships, on, on ministry, on our health, they're never good. Um, if you keep the bow always bent, it will eventually break. I mean, you know, God made it as clear as he could make it there in, in Genesis that we are to, to rest. That's, that's what he had intended. That's what he had designed for us. So Elijah gets caught in, in that as well. He, he's, um, he's just physically, emotionally at the end. But then we see, as we go into verses 4 and 5, the end of verse 4 and, and going into verse 5, we see him get lost in, in self-pity. Uh, verse 4, he, he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under the broom tree. So he's in this sort of the cycle of self-pity that he finds himself in. Um, and and it, it's the result of this unreasonable standard that he has created. That's what self-pity results from. We, we create an unreasonable standard for ourselves, usually from whole cloth. We sort of make it up in our own mind. Um, and then surprise, surprise, we fail to meet the, the unreasonable standard we've met because it really can't be met. And we end up in this self-pity, this cycle of self-pity where uh, we're, we're sort of living in this self-induced victim mentality that we have. It, it's sort of always living in the worst case scenario and it's, you know, it's all imagined. You know, we've sort of made it up. We've created this, this standard for ourselves that we, we can't possibly meet. And what does Elijah say here? He says, I'm no better than my father's, is, is, is his complaint. I'm no better than my father's. Well, whoever said he had to be? Who told him he had to be better than his father's? Who told him that he even had to be the same as his father's? Um, it, it's this unrealistic standard 
that he has created that now leads him into this sort of whiny self-pity that he, that he has. But it's, you sort of listen and, and, and read to what he's saying here. You know, now just let me die. Um, that, that's where self-pity leads, this, this attitude that leads to I'm not good enough. Um, nobody else, nobody needs me. I'd be better off dead. And that's where Elijah is here. He, he's got this unreasonable standard he's created. The only standard that actually matters is God's standard. It's not these made-up imaginary standards that we've created. It's God's standard. And, of course, God's standard, his law, his commandments, we already know we can't meet that standard. Well, we can't. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We, we're not going to meet that standard. And the good news is we don't have to because Jesus met that standard for us. Jesus is the one who paid the price for us failing to meet that standard. Um, so we, you know, we finally here in these first few verses of, of chapter 19, we see the, the humanity of our hero. We kind of built him up as being super heroic, and now we see he, he's afraid. He's got fear. He's not thinking clearly. He's exhausted. Physically, he's exhausted. Emotionally, he's exhausted. Spiritually, he's, he's at the end. Um, and and he's, he's just sort of in this self-pitying cycle where he's actually wishing he would die um, and, and asking to die. We, we see him now in, in all of that, um, the discouragement, the depression, the fear, the hopelessness that he, that he has. Uh, you know, we're not to live in a spirit of hopelessness. Neither was Elijah. And so what we see from this, as we keep continue reading, though, is his hope. There's a hope that Elijah has, and that's what we're going to look at now um, in beginning at the end of verse 5. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Elijah's hope was always found in nothing less than God's mercy and grace. You know, our, our, our exhausted, depressed, discouraged, um, fearful, possibly now suicidal hero. Um, and in his low moment, you know, God meets his servant with mercy. Um, and notice how he demonstrates this mercy to, uh, to Elijah, because it's the same as, as how he demonstrates it with us. First of all, the Lord gives him rest and refreshment. He meets his physical need. And he gives him physical rest. Um, Elijah is starving. He, he's, he's hungry. He's tired physically. He's just, you know, he's just broken. Um, so, you know, hungry, thirsty, exhausted, um, you know, this, this broken body. Think about, in, in the context of sharing the gospel or uh, in your, your work, in any kind of evangelism that you have done as you've gone out and you've shared, and it may be here locally, it may be, I, I think it's easier sometimes to see as you go uh, out, um, you know, possibly out of the country and, and, and you go into poorer areas where the people are just, uh, they don't have anything and their bellies are empty. 
Uh, and it's a type of emptiness. Um, we don't really understand that, that level of hunger, I don't think. Um, but you, know, you think about how a gospel message is received, a spiritual message is received in that physical state of complete starvation and hunger and exhaustion. Um, you know, when you're really hungry, a, a weakened body usually results in a weakened mind, and, and, and that usually leads to a weakened spirit as well. Um, it's, it's difficult when your physical needs have not been met to focus your attention on, um, on the spiritual and, and to focus on what truly matters. But, you know, that's, that's, that's what we face. Um, you know, I, I think our own nature, you know, as we kind of think about us here in this room, here in this church, the, the wisdom of learning to say no um, rather than always saying yes. And this is something that I, I have struggled with for years. My wife is sitting back there. She can tell you that um, I struggle to say no. You know, when I'm asked to, to help, when I'm asked to do something, uh, I don't like saying no. And too often when you, when you don't learn to say no when you need to say no, you end up in a state kind of like Elijah where you're, you're just physically exhausted. You just don't have more that, that you're able to, to give. The result oftentimes is burnout. Uh, you know, we burn out. The, the, the physical toll, it, it takes a toll on us mentally and emotionally as well. And think about our decision-making when we're exhausted. You know, when you have been, I, I'm talking about just exhausted how well do you make decisions? I'm guessing not very well. Just a show of hands. What's the, what's the longest that you've gone without sleep? Let's start with 20 hours. Raise your hand. If you've gone 20 consecutive hours without sleep, okay, 20 hours is a long time. How about 30? Hands up if you've gone 30 hours. Not quite as many hands up. How about 40? I'm 40 hours without sleep. All right, you got a few up. About 50. We've got one right here. 50. 40 or 50? 54. Okay, 54. That's, that's a lot of hours. Um, yeah, I, I remember the, the, last, um, the last mission trip that I went on with Pastor Wade. Let's see back there. Uh, and, and Pastor David and, and Nate was with us as well. I don't sleep on airplanes. I, I don't know. I've never been able to sleep on an airplane. I can't get comfortable. My back's uncomfortable. I, sitting upright, uh, I, you know, I just can't do it. And, and so the last trip that we were on, from, from the moment I woke up the morning we were leaving until the time we got into uh, the hotel at our destination, um, in, including the, the, the flights and the layovers. It was 60 hours. I didn't sleep for 60 hours. Uh, it's a, that's absurd. Um, and, and I can tell you right now that the, I, I, the only decision that, that I could possibly make in that moment when we finally got to where we were going was whether my head was supposed to go on this end of the bed or on that end of the bed. We just don't make good decisions when we're exhausted. Um, you know, and, and so that, that's what we see here in Elijah. And, and what we see first is God feeding and meeting his most immediate need, the physical need that he has before he addresses his more important need. 
Um, so he's, he's provided him rest and refreshment, first of all, in, in meeting that physical need. But then he meets the spiritual needs as well. Um, you know, the, the, the physical need, he's been fed, he's been given water, and we, we're told that he leaves, he, he goes 40 nights, and 40 days and 40 nights, he, he is led to Horeb. Um, and, and so he's gone, maybe not in perfect obedience, but he's gone in obedience. And that's, that's really what resting uh, requires trust. It requires us to trust in God. First of all, that, uh, I mean, look, just, you know, okay, taking a day off, I'm, I'm trusting that I have to, that this place isn't going to fall apart just because I'm not here for a day. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm trusting in that. But to, to rest, to really rest requires trust. And that trust leads to obedience. And, you know, so a, a lack of resting is also, it, it, it's a lack of obedience. As, as, I, as I trust the Lord more, I become more obedient. As I obey more, I, I trust more. And the reverse is also true. The, the, the less I trust, the less obedient I'm going to be. And the less obedient I'm going to be, the less I'm going to trust. And, and so both ends of that sort of feed off of, uh, off of that, that, that same cycle. Um, and so here's Elijah now, physical needs met. 40 days, 40 nights, he's led to, to Horeb. Physical needs met, spiritual needs met. And, and of course, ultimately for the believer, for us as believers, uh, our rest is found in Christ and what Christ has done for us. And that's really what this points to. Um, it, you know, God has established the Sabbath day for, uh, for rest, pointing us to our ultimate permanent rest that we find only in his son Jesus. The Messiah come to provide uh, the ultimate, certainly physical, but spiritual rest and, and to do so permanently. So Elijah, years without uh, without rest, he's gone. Um, years of, of sort of building up to this confrontation with, uh, with Ahab and the prophets of, of Baal and, and Jezebel and, and the burnout that, that he experiences and the brokenness and the despair. And God responds in exactly the way Elijah needs him to respond here, in exact, exactly the right moment. There's not a lecture. He doesn't blame Elijah. He just shows him mercy, he gives him rest. He gives him refreshment. And, and so he, we, we see that, that, that hope that's coming to him. He also, God also provides him with reassurance and, and reaffirmation because he, he reminds him, he reassures him of who God is and then also who, who man is. Uh, verses 9 and 10 says, There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. So going a little into verse 11 there, but it's, it's a simple question. Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah's response makes it pretty clear that he's bought into the big lie. The lie of, I'm all alone. It's just me. I'm the only one. No one else can, can understand what, what, what's happening, what I'm, what I'm going through. And, and it's not just Elijah that, that, has, that falls into that, that trap. We have the same attitude, the same belief, too. You know, anytime we think that there's a ministry burden that we're bearing on our own, 
we're just like Elijah here. I'm all alone. Nobody else is here. Nobody else understands what, what's happening. God reassures him of who God is. Um, you know, 11 and 13, what we see is Elijah has, has really taken his eyes off of the Lord. He's taken his focus off of the Lord. Verse 11, he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, and, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he's taken his focus, taken his eyes off of the Lord, which is the same Look, we do the same thing. We, we, we have this tendency to take our eyes off of the Lord, especially in good times. It's easy to do when things are going well. Um, you know, we, we begin to sort of rely on our own strength. We rely on our own power. We rely on our own understanding because things are just going so easy. Um, things are going so well for us. Um, or we start to focus in the bad times on how poorly things are going and you know, we, we, we begin to believe that, you know, like Elijah has believed, you know, I'm the only one. No one else is, is, is going through this. And we start to notice what's going on around us more than we're focusing on, on the Lord. We focus on the noise. So my dad always called it was, was noise. Um, and, and the noise looks and sounds something like this. You get a nail in your tire, Right? Get a nail in your tire. Now you got to go take the car in. You got to get a new tire, or you got to get it patched. About the time you get that done, get back home. There's a, you know, your washer has has gone out, not working anymore. Refrigerator has gone out. So now you got to get an appliance. You got to replace that. About the time you're you're getting that done, the the toilet is backed up, or your septic is backed up, and it it, it seems that there's one thing right after another. Why are all of these things happening all at the same time to me? And the reality is. These things were always there. It's just you've taken your eyes, you've taken your focus off of the Lord, and now you've noticed, really noticed the nail in the tire. And because you've noticed and you've started to focus on that nail in the tire, now you notice the washer that's out. And okay, now I've got a nail in the tire, I got the, the, the washer is out, now I gotta go, there's a toilet that's not working, I gotta go take care of that also. These things were always there, but this, this is noise. And my dad always told me, you know, don't listen to the noise. It's just noise. Don't take your eyes, don't take your focus off of you know, what you should be focused on, which is serving the Lord. Um, focusing on Him, keeping our eyes on Him. Peter learned this lesson as well, the hard way. Right? He's out, he, he's walking on the water. Jesus has told him, come on, Peter, walk. And he's, he's focusing, he's, he's looking at, at Jesus, he's walking on the water, and then all of a sudden he notices the noise. You know, he sees, wait a minute, <laughs> I'm on water, and there's waves, and there's wind, and there's rain, and plunk, down he goes. Took his eyes off of, off of Jesus, and he goes down. So it's in, a, it's in a gentle whisper that God speaks to Elijah, that, that he hears him. And what he says, what he teaches Elijah here, is, Elijah, I am God. Um, I've got this. I've always had this. You need to trust and focus on me. See, uh, 
you know, God gets Elijah here literally out of the cave, out of that dark cave, that dark place that he's in, and, and brings him into the light. And it's in the light where we're encouraged. It's in the light where we find our hope. And so that's what God does for Elijah here in, in this. He, he reassures him, reminds him of who he is, who God is. But then he also reaffirms him. Um, because we, we, you know, we just read there at the end of verse 13, you know, we saw Elijah with this sort of whiny complaint earlier. Now here he is. He's, he's, you know, God is now in the, gentle, uh, in the gentle breeze, the gentle whisper. And he asks him again, what are you doing here, Elijah? And it's sort of this same now very empty whine that we hear from Elijah. But notice how God uh, shows him mercy in, in this. Uh, starting in verse 14, uh, he, said, he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord. This is Elijah, uh, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he reaffirms Elijah here. Um, you know, the last, the, the original complaint that Elijah makes, God reassures him, reminds him of who he is. But now, God reminds him that he's not done with Elijah yet. There's still a job to do, and Elijah is still God's man for that job. And he says, you know, oh, by the way, Elijah, you're not the only one. Um, you're not alone in this. And you know, think about the effect that this, this type of reaffirmation has on Elijah. Um, you know, the, the, the reaffirmation by God of who God was, but then also who Elijah was as well. Uh, it, the the you know, words of affirmation or reaffirmation spoken to uh, someone, um, it, it's amazing the effect that it has on them. You know, I referenced earlier the, the difficult uh, job that a pastor has in, in ministry and the burdens that they bear and, and um, the weight that they often carry. Affirmation of them, you know, just, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about you. I'm, I'm praying for you. you know, I love you. I appreciate you. Uh, the, the effect and the impact of that is, um, is not something to, to, to just be ignored. And it, it does so much to reinvigorate um, and to remind someone of the important work that they're doing and the important call uh, that they have. And that's what Elijah, uh, that's what God has done for Elijah here is just to reaffirm him. Uh, so he's reassured him, he's reaffirmed him, uh, but then he goes on to you know, allow him to be re-energized and to, and to refocus. Um, verse 19 So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with, with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left his oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? The, 
we see in here the impact of a companion because what God has done is he, he's not merely allowed Elijah to anoint his successor. He's given him a, a trusted friend. He's given him a, a, a real companion. And, and what does a friend provide? A friend provides encouragement. A friend ministers to uh, to a friend. Um, there, there's burdens that are shared. There's, you know, you, a friend will laugh with you and cry with you, um, share the, the, you know, the burden with you. And, and you think about this in the context here of McGregor and our life groups. Think about the effectiveness of those who are a part of a life group, a smaller group where there's that connectedness. And their ministry activity, their, their desire to serve, their actual service, Versus those who, you know, you might call them the pew warriors, the ones who just show up on a, on a Sunday morning, sit on a pew in the back, they do their hour of church, they go home. There's no connection there. Um, but Elijah here has been given a companion. There's a connectedness. And, and it's in that connection that we, we find encouragement from one another, that, we, that we're able to bear the burdens together. So years of toiling away by Elijah, um, the isolation, uh, and now someone to share the burdens with him and minister to Elijah just as he had been ministering to the people. So he, he's re-energized in that, but he's also able to refocus because there's not only is there an impact of a companion, but we also see the impact uh, on a companion. You know, because Eli what does Elijah say? Right there at the end, he says, go back again for what have I done to you? Um, there's a concern that Elijah expresses here uh, for Elisha. Elijah knows full well what awaits Elisha. You know, Elisha now stepping into to his ministry role, um, accepting his call as the successor to Elijah. Elijah knows what he's in for. Now, Elijah has lived it. And there's this concern, the, you know, the, the pain, the frustration, the, uh, the loneliness, the fear that he's felt, uh, the rejection that he's felt, but also Elijah understands the importance of the mission that he's been given. He understands also the joy of, of serving. There's a, I don't know if it's an age in life, I think it's more of a stage in life that we and I think we all tend to come to it, where we, we, we realize the importance of the generation to come, the generation behind us. And we realize and recognize the ability that we have, but also the responsibility that we have to impact that, that generation. You know, in your early years, where it's just you and your spouse, your, you know, your focus is really on the, on, on the two of you. But then kids come along, and, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, oh my goodness, I, there's this... There's this small person who, I gotta feed him, I gotta clothe him. I mean, th this kid can't even poop by himself. I gotta take care of that also. Um, you know, I, I, I gotta pour myself into this little one and, and raise him up. And then I haven't reached the grandparent stage yet, but from what I understand, you know, that you, you know, at grandparent stage, it, it's much the same, but it's even more so because at, at that stage, I think you're you're recognizing. You've got a family. It's not just a, a kid. There's a whole family. You're, you're the patriarch of a family. You're the matriarch of a family. And, and the responsibility that is felt to now bring up these multiple generations behind. 
so there's this shifting of, of our focus that happens in that. And, and so here we have Elijah now refocusing um, the responsibility that he feels, the desire that he now has, the concern for preparing this next generation prophet um, to continue this mission, this mission that is much bigger than Elijah. Um, but now you have, you, you have him refocused uh, and re-energized as well. And so there's the hope. We've had this great hero of faith who up until now we built him up as being super heroic and now tonight we see he's a human hero see him in all of his humanity uh, we, you know, we see him physically broken we see him spiritually broken but we also see the hope that he has and, and the overriding thread through this uh, as you read through there with Elijah is just to look up Elijah looked down, and there's a danger in looking down, taking our eyes off of the Lord, taking our eyes off of, uh, off of, off of God. You know, when you're, when you're used in a mighty way, look up. You know, don't focus on what was just happened. Look up at the one who has used you. When, uh, you know, when you've stood strong against the enemy, look up. You know, when you're tempted to, to, to start focusing on, uh, you know, the gifts and, and the tools that you've been given, look up the one who has given those to you and not focus on those. It, it's very tempting. Um, and it's very easy in the, busy, the busyness of life uh, to become very impressed with ourselves, become very impressed with, with what we think we have accomplished with our abilities, our own accomplishments, particularly in good times. It's also just as easy in, in those down times, the tough times, to become despondent, to become discouraged, to become depressed, like we see Elijah as well. You know, Elijah performed these incredible miracles, um, tirelessly opposing this evil, very carnal, very wicked king and, and queen. Spent years toiling away in, in service and eventually and gradually he takes his eyes off of the Lord and he breaks. But what a good and awesome God that we serve because it's a God, he's a God who refreshes and he restores and he, um, he refocuses and he re-energizes and he reaffirms and he reminds. Um, but our eyes need to remain fixed on him. So we need to look up. 